everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. The IHE underwrites this podcast, and I'm very grateful for their ongoing support. To learn more about the IHE and all the wonderful work they do, please go to ihe.catholic.edu. I am also grateful to The Lamp and The Point magazines for underwriting my Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash udaimoniapod to become a monthly patron. If you subscribe at $10 per month, you can get a free digital subscription to either The Point Magazine or The Lamp Magazine. And please check out my sponsors at thelampmagazine.com and thepointmag.com. In this episode, I am once again joined by Russ Hintinger, Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, to discuss St. Augustine's Confessions. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am once again delighted to be joined by my friend, Russ Hentinger. Happy St. Patrick's Day, Russ. Hey, thank you, Jennifer. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you. So you are out in green California. It actually is green these days, right? Yes, it looks like Ireland. Yeah, so I was just in San Jose, I guess it was like two weeks ago at this point, and I was flying in from Dallas, and I was so struck by how beautiful it was. I felt like I was flying into New Zealand or something. It was so green and lush and beautiful. It really didn't look like California at all. But I'd never been to San Jose. So I asked my hosts, I was like, is this normal? And they were like, absolutely not. <laughs> but, it, but it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. So I guess that's the upside to the somewhat dramatic weather that you've been having out there. Californians get to have drinking water again. Yeah, well, that is also an upside you have been suffering from a drought, but you, I mean, so you're at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology right now because you're um, you're dean of the College of Fellows there, but then you also have some kind of visiting appointment, correct? Correct. Yeah, so, and the, the college, are, or St. Albert's Priory, I mean, you're in the Priory, right? Right, right. The yeah. school is on the other side of Berkeley. Okay, right. But- but y'all have really suffered there from all this weather. Right. There's been flooding, uh, uh, trees down, mm-hmm. all of the kind of things to go with. Basically, in eight weeks, I've counted seven days of sunshine or mostly sunny. So we have one storm after another. Yeah. 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 That definitely tracks. Like I said, I was in San Jose and it was cold. So that was a bummer. <laughs> But it also rained most of the time, and there was very little sun. Yeah, so anyway, well, at least it's green on St. Patrick's Day. And we are back once again to, this is our second installment of our great conversation on St. Augustine's Confessions. If you have not listened to 
part one. You should stop right now and go back and listen to part one so that this episode uh, will be much more rewarding for you. But maybe we should just briefly talk about where we left off and where we're going today. Yes. Let me see. We left off at book five. But let's retrace our steps a bit. I was proposing for the listeners, when they read the Confessions, to understand that the first nine books really are a tightly interwoven story of his own life, but one that's based upon Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. So the prodigal son, of course, demands his inheritance, goes to a foreign land, he becomes a wastrel, he, he wastes both his spiritual and corporeal life in, in this way of living, and he finds himself tending pigs and not being able to eat food as good as what's being served to the pigs. Mm-hmm. He stands up and says, I will return to the house of my father, and goes back. Mm-hmm. Well, the nine books, the first nine books of the city of God are about him leaving and finding a way back. Mm-hmm. I would say this, this is a deeply scriptural type of story. It's a story about conversion, but it's also an ancient story because we think about Homer's Odyssey, right, in which someone is lost and trying to get back home. But particularly in Augustine's world, you would think of Virgil in the Aeneid, mm-hmm. about Aeneas and his band who leave Troy and are not quite sure how they're going to get where they need to go. But I would say there's three main questions that keep on arising in the first nine books. Who is my father? Is it my natural father? By the way, Patrick was his mm-hmm. name. Yeah, that's right. Is it my natural father? Is it my professors? Mm -hmm. Who is my father? Second question is, who can teach me how to be a son? A true filius. And the third question is, how do I get back? Mm -hmm. And book five is the crossover. He leaves North Africa. His life gets complicated. He's, he's out of his wits at this point, doesn't know what to do, and goes to Italy. And in Italy, rather quickly, he finds a father. And that's going to be, well, someone who can teach him who his father is and teach him how to be a filius, and that's St. Ambrose in Milan. Mm-hmm. There's a, by the way, the complexity of the scriptural references in the Confessions is just massive. One scholar has added up the number of quotations to Scripture Mm -hmm. in all of Augustine's work, and it comes to 41,000 times. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, this is a casual observation on my part, and I'm very far from an Augustine scholar, but it seems like the Psalms predominate a bit. I just feel like the Psalms are everywhere. He began working on those very soon at the time of his conversion, a little bit, and kept on working on them all the way through. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, he died in 430. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely a mother load of scriptural mm-hmm. interpretation. So there is a passage in Book 3 that I think nicely summarizes those first five books, first four books moving into five. It's in Book 3, Chapter 8. And let me read it. It's not long. Yes, please. And these things are done. He's referring to sins in his own life, living in Carthage. When you are forsaken, O fountain of life, who are the only true creator and rector of the universe, and they proceed from the private and arrogant self-will, which falsely attributes unity to a part and loves it. That's what he calls pride, curiosity, and lust, mm-hmm. that, that the self becomes God, stands in the place of God, <clears throat> and all other lovable things are just satellites of the self which is constantly fueled by more curiosity how to perform acts of prideful lust. Anyway, so here's the way back, the transition. He says, so the way back to you, in Latin, reditur in te, to return, is through humility and devoutness, and you cleanse us from our evil habits, and you look mercifully on the sins of those who confess them to you. Mm-hmm. You hear the groaning of the prisoners you free from those fetters which we have made for ourselves. So long as we do not raise against you a standards of an unreal liberty and in the desire for more risk the loss of everything by setting our love more upon our private good than upon you, the good of all things. The interesting passage inside that quotation the fetters we have made for ourselves. Yep. The, the term here is vinculis. Mm-hmm, the chains. Now, this, this is very important. Uh, yeah. You'd have to read a fair amount of Augustine to know what the allusion is to here. But it's the definition of religion. So the first definition of religio, it mm-hmm. always has the re in front, which means to do over and over again. Ligare, to bind. To mm-hmm. bind oneself over and over and over again is, is religion. But you don't just do it once. Right. You bind and rebind these ligaments. That's but right. But the second meaning of religion is to re-read, re-legere, to read something over and over again. Okay. Like scripture or mm-hmm. liturgical book. And the final uh, meaning of religion, this, this is all Augustine, by the way, is re-eligere, which is to refine something that's been lost. Mm. So these chains that we have to be released from are false religion. Yeah. And all false religion puts a creature in the place of God. Right. And, and why not the self while we're at it? Right. Always going for the lesser good. That's kind of how Augustine thinks of sin, right? That's how you miss the mark, is that you go for a lesser good, either in the knowledge that it's a lesser good or not, but in, but in either case, that's just kind of... And, it, and, and obviously, that's also irrational. <laughs> I mean, why would you go for something that's less good when what you want, right, is 
to be happy or perfectly fulfilled. Like the lesser good is obviously not going to accomplish that in the same way as the greater good. Yeah. So I think that that really is like such a wonderful summary of these nine books, right? Because so much of what he gets into in books six through nine Uh, leading into book 10, where he also talks about the same stuff, but in a different, more philosophical sort of way, a way that's not necessarily so tied to his personal story, is just like trying to figure out why he was always going for the lesser good, right? Trying to like understand himself, I think. You know, and because... It, it, well, I mean, one one thing that it's just really, I mean, this book, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I didn't really say much about it. But when I read this book when I was 18, which was some time ago now, one thing that just was so powerful to me about it and so striking and, and it resonated so deeply with me was that Augustine was like one of the first people that I read that who was just being so honest about the fact that like he really didn't understand himself that well. And like in struggling to understand himself, he sort of, it's, it's, it was like the struggle to understand himself, which led him to ask these more very abstract and general philosophical and theological questions but it was really just like why am i so dumb (laughs) and and that was so powerful to me because i was like yeah why am i so dumb i don't know either and that's why several times in the confessions he actually poses the question why am i such a difficult piece of ground yeah yes (laughs) yes right Yeah. yeah i mean and he and i just and another thing that was like really powerful for me about it is that he, I mean, he, it's not like he has some pat, easy answer, right? It's, it's not like the struggle for him is totally over. I mean, he does have important things to say at the end of the day, but it's not like, I mean, nobody would confuse this book with like self-help, right? <laughs> like this one easy trick and it'll all be fine. No, I mean the struggle in some sense is ongoing. It will it will necessarily be ongoing. And that too just really resonated with me. Anyways. Yeah, so we could say the self-help if if there were one. Mm-hmm. Uh, is Augustine is saying to himself and confessing, I need a true religion. Yeah. And those three sense of binding. Right. That is, who is my father? Who's going to teach me how to be a good son? How am I going to get? You, you need a true religion. Uh-huh. And it's when in uh, 383, he leaves North Africa and goes to Italy and ends up in Milan. He, has, he gets a fantastic job to be master of imperial rhetoric uh, that he meets a new daddy, at least one who's going to teach him who the father is. And that's Ambrose. Mm-hmm. And a very Ambrose is going to teach him religion, mm-hmm. a religion he really does not know. And the first sign, it, 
is these incredible, incredibly powerful vignettes. This is in Book 6, Chapter 3. He goes into Ambrose's study, because Ambrose liked the young men to come in and ask him questions. He had a, he had a kind of ongoing uh, podcast going on, if we can put it that way. <laughs> That, that, the, that the younger guys, remember the imperial government is in Milan right now, mm-hmm. who would come and ask him philosophical, theological, scriptural questions. So Augustine goes into uh, Ambrose's study, and he's astounded that Ambrose is reading silently. Mm-hmm. Now, this tells you a lot about the ancient world, because the norm of reading is oral. I mean, that's how you learn the language. That's how you become master. In other words, reading is for the sake of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is definitely not silent. Right. Okay. So, with Ambrose, he has an insight right off the bat that Ambrose is devoted to truth, not rhetoric. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a big moment in his life, and then. Ambrose is also teaching, as he explains there in uh, Book 6, in the church in Milan, how to interpret Scripture not only in its literal sense, but also in its analogical, uh, that is, allegorical and anagogical senses. Mm -hmm. So to, to continue to meditate upon Scripture from its overt, even oral word that we can hear as it's read in the church to spiritual meanings of it. Mm-hmm. This was the beginning of learning true religion for, for Augustine, is that there's a spiritual truth. Right. And this is deeply connected to his career, because as a rhetorician, he well, I guess all rhetoricians have to suffer suffer a kind of moral crisis, mm-hmm. which is how to have a proper alignment between a sign, a semiotic, like a word or mm-hmm. a gesture or whatever it might be, and its referent. Now, I mean, the real thing is not just the word bird, but an actual bird. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or not just the word human, but an actual human made unto the image and likeness of God. So rhetoricians favor the, the sign. I mean, because the expertise in rhetoric is the piling up and delineations of signs done orally, and therefore the critique going all the way back to Plato of these kinds of people is that they don't care about the referent, the actual thing. Right, right. So the... The platonic analog of the rhetorician is the sophist. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So. And um, the poets. And the poets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the job of the rhetorician is to persuade. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And. And, and is to persuade through speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's how you do it. How you speak means everything. Well, how it's organized as well. Mm-hmm. But this is his crisis all the way through Book 10. I'm just going to flag this because Book 10 will be a very extended meditation on signs 
and how to read them, how to understand them, what their true reference are. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, so if his crisis is that he's not really, because I, I forget exactly what book it was earlier, maybe it was book three, but at some point he reads Cicero's Hortensius and, he's, and he thinks, oh, I really want to be seeking after wisdom. But as a rhetorician, that's not really his goal, right? His goal is persuasion, you know, possibly just manipulating words, definitely manipulating emotions through words, but not necessarily just having your heart set on truth in the thick sense of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I, it seems to me that that's related to another sort of crisis or is maybe just a different way of naming the crisis. And that is that it seems to me in book six, he's Augustine is really coming to terms with the fact that his secular ambitions, his kind of worldly ambitions are making him like super are making him miserable, right? They are thwarting his attempts to live a flourishing life. So there's this just absolutely amazing scene with the drunken beggar. So 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 like Augustine's on his way to give some super important speech and he's kind of freaking out. He has a lot of anxiety about it. And he sees this like happy drunken beggar on the streets and he's really struck because he's like that guy's happier than me right and how on earth is that possible that this yahoo is literally better off than me right now and he's not saying oh (laughs) being a drunken beggar is you know the good life but he is saying well it's actually in some important sense a better life than the one that I'm living because he's at least carefree. Well, that is yet another riff on the prodigal son. Yeah. You want to say more about that? Well, the pigs are better off than the prodigal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So what is important about the street person in that uh, event is that he's humble Mm-hmm. which is going to be a big theme once we get to seven and eight, book seven and eight. But if, if you're swollen with pride, you're always miserable. And mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't understand. I mean, so even, even that kind of ragtag humility of the beggar, there's something there that's spiritually honest, not spiritually perfected by any means, but spiritually honest. Yeah, and I think sometimes in this book, he's sort of becoming aware of the difference because Ambrose is a is a bishop, and Augustine seems to be picking up a difference between his admiration for Ambrose as a powerful man versus Ambrose as someone who is embodying, you know, what it means to act in the person of Christ, like what what it means to imitate and follow Christ as a bishop. And I think he's starting to try to also sort that out in his mind, like the difference between those two kinds of admiration. Right. Well, remember at the end of book five, he is in Milan at the end of book five, and he's joined 
the congregation. He, he has become a he has become a competente. He's, he's going to become a, a, a catechumen. Mm-hmm. But remember what he says. I wasn't sure about all of this yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, he was with Ambrose and Ambrose's associates and going to the church. He was convinced only of this, that there was a better way to read the scriptures than what the Manichaeans had taught him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear in book six, but I would say throughout the books until you get to his conversion, that his this decision that he's made to become a catechumenate, it's not it's not a catechumen. It's not wholehearted. <laughs> right? Like he's not like there there are parts of him that are holding him back. Right. So it's not and he of course he goes on to talk about this like quite a bit, but he basically says yeah, like I was longing for the happy life, but I was afraid of the place where it had its seat, and I fled from it at the same time that I was seeking it, right? So he's like, he's like, yeah, God, that's good, but seems to be requiring a lot of me that I don't really, <laughs> I don't really want to give up. Including putting his intellectual curiosity first. Mm-hmm. Now, Augustine, just as the kind of fellow he is, is always going to have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. But it's in book six also, he meets some of the entourage around Ambrose, which includes fully baptized Catholics, but also includes Platonists. Mm-hmm. They were like discussion groups mm-hmm. that would, and he wanted to know the Platonist positions on things. Mm-hmm. Were these Platonist Platonists or Christian Platonists? Some of them were Christian, some of them were not. Mm-hmm. Just exactly what he had read, maybe a chapter or two of Plotinus, other, other translations into Latin. I don't think he read Plato directly. Mm-hmm. That's why he calls them the Platonists. Mm-hmm. And he, he learns three things in this period of his life, about a year and a half. The Platonists teach him two things positively and one thing negatively, which was an important thing to learn. The first thing he learns from the Platonists is that spirit is something greater than mind. Mm. Because he has this Latin sense of mens as well, just argument, or it can be something even in some ways material. Mm. And the Platonists teach him that there are there is spirit that is immateriality, true immateriality, and in the understanding of the divine mind, mm. so something when, truly immaterial. So is it kind of like the difference between... I mean, I'm just thinking, like in the Greek, there is this concept of the logisticon, which is kind of just like the calculative part of reason, right? where it's like all you're inferring and <laughs> you're calculating and 
the different ways that you can do that, it's it's all discursive. And then there's something higher, right? Which yep. is noose or intuition. Is that tracking this at all or no? Yes. And okay. it, it, it is also the understanding of, uh, it's, it's a metaphysical question of being. Mm-hmm. Are all beings divisible things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They may be of different kinds, but they're all under the genus of in motion and divisible. I see. In yeah. one way or another, including our minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he learns that. And by the way, that lesson, he's also getting reinforced through Ambrose. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. About, about the biblical God. Mm-hmm. But maybe the biggest thing he learns is the platonic answer to the problem of evil. Right. Right. Let's talk about that. Yeah, the Platonists taught that evil is not a thing Mm -hmm. or a a privation. Yeah. It's it's a privation. And the best word is in Latin is absence, which is ab ends, away from being. Mm -hmm. There's something absent, something that should be there with regard to the measure, form, and order of a thing. Right. But it's an absence itself. that, right, can only be explained by form. So if, yeah. it has to be something that ought to have been, but is not. Right. Yeah. So that this is finally getting him free of the Manichaean dualism position, that there are some beings that are evil and some that are pure spirit or mm-hmm. spiritual. Mm-hmm. And um, so... If you go to the doctor and says, I have bad news for you, and I said, well, what's that? It's you have a cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the cancer depends upon cell reproduction. Mm-hmm. And cell reproduction is a good thing. Right. So in other words, the evils are, and we're not saying that they're not evil and deficient, but the evils are not predicated of the very substance. Right. To be a human being, to be an angel, to be a body, the privation of the, what he calls measure, form, and order. It's mm-hmm. of its oneness, its form, and its order. It's, mm-hmm. we could call it even teleology. Mm-hmm. Private, but it presupposes the goodness of the thing. Right, exactly. So it's the privation. Yeah. I love how Aquinas puts it. He says, evil can only be found in good. It's not, it just doesn't stand on its own ontologically or epistemically or in any sense. It can only be found in good, right? So this, this is a setup for the next two books about moral evil being a privation of the will, which, which we can talk about in just a second. Mm-hmm. But then I think the third thing he learns, which is very, very important, mm-hmm. is that the way up is down. And he's not learning that from the Platonists. What do you mean by that, the way up is down? That the way home, the way to the Father, the way to the blessed land is through humility. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. And he said, these Platonists never taught me this. Mm. By the way, around this time, he begins to read St. Paul. Mm -hmm. 
and he learns about the humility of Christ, the Christ who is clothed in skin. Mm. Right? I mean, the kenosis of Christ, Mm -hmm. who in the fullness of God becomes man and humbles himself, and that the moral problem of evil that's already coming up, he begins to discover has to do with humility. Mm-hmm. So just having the right answer to why one is wrong, mm-hmm. to know the truth about why one is wrong, doesn't ne- necessarily fix the human condition. There, there needs to be a much more profound humility, and I have a passage to read on that. Yeah, please. This is in Book 7, Chapter 20. It's one of these plutonium-grade passages in the Confessions. He says, on all these points, I was perfectly certain. That is the points that he had learned in books five and six, philosophical points. He says, but I was still too weak to be able to enjoy you. I talked away as though I were a finished scholar. But if I had not found the way to you in Christ, our Savior, I would have been finished. Mm-hmm. This is a wordplay on peritus, meaning expert, and uh, perire means to die or be wasted. So he was proud even in what he had learned, is what Mm -hmm. he's saying. Right. For I had begun to want to have the reputation of a wise man. My punishment was within me, but I did not weep. I was merely puffed up with my knowledge. Where was that charity that builds from the foundation of humility? the foundation which is Christ Jesus. But humility was not a subject which those Platonic books would have ever taught me. Yet I believe you wanted me to come upon these books before I made a study of your scriptures. Mm. You wanted the impression made by them on me to be printed in my memory. So when later I had become, as it were, tamed by your books, your fingers dressing my wounds. By the way, consuere, your fingers stitching my wounds back together again, stitching like pages of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So you, may, you might remember that when Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise, the Lord God makes clothes for them mm, yeah. out of mm-hmm. skins. And the skins were interpreted by Augustine as the, the prophecy of having the Bible, the skins of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And he says, I should have been able to clearly see what the difference is between presumption and confession, between those who see their goal without saying how to get there and those who see the way that leads to that happy country. For I had, or had I first been trained, by the way, the word there is really brought up in, the father-son theme again. Mm-hmm. to actually be trained in a household, mm-hmm. in your scriptures, and my familiarity with them had found you growing sweet to me, and then afterward come upon these books of the Platonists. It is possible they would have swept me away from the solid basis in piety. Yeah. So what he had to learn was that learning is not just going up or getting clear. Mm-hmm. Learning is also moral and spiritual. You have to be properly placed. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You have to have a proper posture yes. toward reality and God. Yes. I think that's a huge theme of the confessions, actually, more, more generally. But, you know, in, in book six in particular, it's like, I think Augustine comes to see that his desire to know and his desire for truth, which is good. It's a good desire. It's also a natural desire. It can be misdirected in all of these ways, and it gets really misdirected and distorted in his case by his ambitions, right? Which I think stem from his pride. And and that's where we see that vice, you know, takes these natural loves in us and distorts them so that they work against our happiness rather than to be in service of it, which, right, would be the good case. And I, I just have a question for you, though, and that is about the relationship between pride and curiositas, because another thing that happens in book six, he talks a lot about his friendship with Olypius, and then there's this really famous passage <laughs> with Olypius in the gladiator games mm. and kind of the love of spectacle which is one of my favorite parts of the confessions. And Augustine's sort of talking about how his friend, you know, didn't want, like like his friend sort of recognized that watching what happens in these gladiatorial games, which are, which are part of a much larger spectacle, right? Like the gladiator games is just one part of this bigger, you know, show. But, but that he, he would be overcome by, you know, the lust of the eyes and just this, yeah, and and that's kind of linked to what Augustine calls curiosity, but which my friend Zena Hitz calls love of spectacle. She thinks curiosity is like a confusing translation, but she calls it love of spectacle. Anyway, I just wondered if we could talk about that. Yeah. By the way, in the very first sentence of Book 10, We'll mm-hmm. get to that next time fully. Yeah, yeah. But the very first sentence has to do with this about oh, yeah. how pride has to be corrected mm-hmm. and curiosity has to be corrected. Mm-hmm. The very first sentence, after all of the conversion now, it's in book 10, begins after the conversion. He says, Let me know, let me know you. My known, let me know thee even as I am known. Mm-hmm. That's the that that sentence summarizes this because it takes a lot of humility to say that. That mm-hmm. is, I want to know myself as you know me mm-hmm. better than I know myself directly. Right. That's humility. Right. Listen, if you're going to ask for that, you're you're in for a deep trip here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess, and maybe this is an ill-formed question, and if it is, I would love for you to tell me why. But, like, one thing that I'm just inclined to ask here is how much of curiositas is coming from lust as opposed to pride, right? Because you can clearly see in his discussion of Olympias at the gladiatorial games, like, a lot of it's this lust of the eyes, right? But it also seems related to pride. 
So, and you're, and you know, this is kind of like the upside down Trinity or the unhappy Trinity is like pride, curiosity, and lust. I mean, they all seem to be interrelated somehow. Right. Yeah, for Augustine, it's a spiritual dynamism mm -hmm. that pride is regarding yourself as the center of the universe, so to speak. And it natural, well, it, it engenders, let's say, mm -hmm. the, the loving of things other than yourself only as they serve the self. So I used the, I think I used the example last time of Mozart's Don Giovanni. Uh, we asked, does Don Giovanni love women? And the answer is no. <laughs> no, he, he loves definitely. <laughs> he loves himself loving them. Right. So if Don Giovanni is the center of Spain and of the universe, it naturally goes out to lust, which is mm -hmm. the conquering, the domination. Mm -hmm and making them satellites of the self. But no, this is the beginning of Don Giovanni opera, right? He's mm -hmm. escaping out of the window of a woman he just savaged, mm -hmm. so to speak. <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he's running. But he's already thinking about his next conquest. That's curiositas. They're, they're, they're like a, mm -hmm. an empty wheel. They're just going around and around. Mm -hmm. So always on the prowl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is book six, chapter 13. He talks about the monstrous delight and the cruelty and how, like, he's trying to keep his eyes shut and his ears blocked, but then there's this great roar from the crowd and, like, he can't help himself. He was struck in the soul by a wound graver than the gladiator in his body. As soon as he saw the blood, he at once drank in savagery and did not turn away. His eyes were riveted. He imbibed madness. Without any awareness of what was happening to him, he found delight in the murderous contest and was inebriated by bloodthirsty pleasure. He was not now the person who had come in, but just one of the crowd which he had joined and a true member of the group which had brought him. I just, I love this passage. It's such a good it just captures something so true about human natures, like how we, because I think somehow curiosity toss and this lust of the eyes is related to these kinds of distractions that like are clearly bad for us, but we just like find that we can't help ourselves. It's like in the Republic with that guy who can't stop himself from looking at dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> or traffic jams that are nothing more than rubbernecking. And you know that a good follow-up to that is to read the first five books of the City of God, where mm. he spends quite a bit of time on the Roman stage. Speaking mm -hmm. of the Roman stage, and contending that Plato was right to kick all these people out of the Republic. Because yeah, I, I, might, I might disagree with that. <laughs> what's being depicted on the stage... Mm -hmm. The ancient Roman stage are the it is a ridicule of the gods. Mm -hmm. So the gods are depicted kind of like a an Abbott and Costello movie, mm -hmm. and everyone can laugh. Everyone can laugh, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's entertainment. Mm -hmm. But the purpose of the entertainment is this: to make the spectators superior to the thing they're mocking. Mm. superior to the gods. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And he's, so that's he's the quite, connection to pride, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's quite well. Let's put it this way: he he, he says it's demonic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we we need to move on to book seven now. Yeah, we, it, we were just in seven. Let's go to eight. Oh, okay. Do we we not want to talk about evil? We can talk about yes. So but I guess the, the only evil, the evil is actually resolved at the beginning of eight. But anyway, <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, let me let me ask a question, and then you can say how it's resolved in book seven. Um, Augustine is talking, I mean, he's kind of meditating in a more theological or philosophical way on the origin of evil and sort of the question of why, why should we be able or free to choose evil? Like, wouldn't it have been better if we just always chose the good? And this is happening alongside a discussion of astrology. It's never clear to me if those are related, but it's this question like, well, look, how does the will become perverse? And one answer to the question that Augustine clearly has is that it becomes perverse through bad habits, right? But that's a limited explanation, I think, because it doesn't explain what happened in the Garden of Eden. Like, they didn't have bad habits. They weren't like, right? There's no story about their upbringing, (laughs) like how they cultivated bad habits. And then it's the same problem with, the fall, like fallen angels, or let's take the case of the fall of the devil. There you have a superior creature anyway, but his problem wasn't that like he had bad habits and he just couldn't shake them. And his problem also wasn't that he somehow like misunderstood, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. That God wasn't in fact superior to him. It was just that like, he, well, at least in one classic interpretation, right? He he just didn't like the fact that God, you know, was more powerful or whatever. And so he turns against him. But like, what is the origin of that not liking it? That sense of that, that evil, right? That, I mean, that evil choice comes from somewhere, <laughs> And it's like, why is it that you have some angels that are just going to go the right way and some angels that are going to go the wrong way? And it just doesn't look like we have a clear account of what the difference is there in the way that you would have a clear account if you could just be like, well, look at all these terrible habits that they somehow accrued over time. Right. So that in the case of the infants at the breast in the confessions, we have some ground for understanding that because there's been original sin. Yeah, but that wasn't the case for Adam and Eve. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> so, this is, or the angels. So yeah. This is why we can truly speak of the mystery of evil. Yeah. But listen, when Lucifer, the word means light bearer, yeah. mm-hmm. the most superior of all the angels, chooses himself. He's happy to choose God, but first to choose himself. Okay. Mm. He's not choosing nothing. He's choosing the most brilliant of the created lights. Mm-hmm. He's choosing something. Yeah. Okay. And when Adam and Eve are tempted, Eve is offered something that she thinks she ought to have, 
which is to be like the big guys, that is the angels, the big guys, in between human beings and, and the divine. And it's by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she can become like the Elohim or whatever the, the angels. Mm-hmm. So they choose something. Mm-hmm. And they choose something that has some ground in the goodness of their own being, Mm -hmm. even without antecedent sin Mm -hmm. or bad habits. Right. Right. The best place Augustine is going to treat that is in books 12 to 14 of the City of God. Okay. Because he just goes through these. Mm -hmm. He goes through Genesis. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll have you back next year, Russ, to talk about the city of God. The only other thing I wanted to say about book seven is that it's, I think it's in book seven that he first starts to talk about being kind of weighed down by loves that are disordered, right? So he talks about being weighed down by his lust and like there's kind of this metaphor of it's like he wants, right? He wants to ascend to what to what he knows is higher, to what he knows is truly good. But he's like literally weighed down by lust, by pride, and he can't, like, he can't relieve himself of these weights. He can't, he can't help himself, right? Okay, so that's all I wanted to say about book seven. Well, but but there is one more thing to be said about the will, which becomes. The central focus, it's important to understand that for Augustine, the will is not just an executive power. Mm-hmm. The will has these two levels to it, or dynamisms within a single spiritual organ. It's freedom of choice from which we can have executive power. Right, that's the libero arbitrio, right? Yeah, so in yeah. other words, yeah, I'd rather have myself than you. <laughs> okay, kind of right. thing. Mm-hmm. I'd prefer this and. There, there can be an executive order, mm-hmm. but the other of the level of the will is more an order of love. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's more truly erotic, mm-hmm. in in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the difference between to will or not to will, and to be willing or not to be willing. Right. And Augustine finds the locus of evil in the disharmony between these two. Right. And so for some things, we see that it's good, and I can choose them and do it right away. Mm -hmm. And he speaks of, here in the Confessions even, about, you know, you go down to the docks in Hippo, and you'll find someone doing tricks in which he is able to swallow all kinds of things, Mm -hmm. or to pass gas in the mode of a tune. Just requires, (laughs) well, let's put it this way. It, it takes enormous concentration of the will. I bet. So, I don't know. but well, He says there's all kinds of things that we see, are, but there are other things in which we say yay, and in a way we're not willing. Right. And, that, and that's it, a... The will that, is being torn like a, like a piece of taffy. It's yeah. being distended. Yeah. So I so that deeper level of whether or not you're willing, like that's the level at which we're talking about habit, correct? Right. Yeah. So yeah, I love 
Yeah, that's exactly I, what the habits are. Yeah. And by the way, he always, he's always going to call it the evil habits, pride, curiosity, and lust. Yeah. Interesting. So I love book eight. I, I just, and that, and that has to do with certain things that I was very obsessed with from a very early age. And that is the ways in which we can be divided against ourselves, right? The ways in which we can be half-hearted as opposed to wholehearted. The ways that we can literally get in our own way, but we like sort of can't, we can't help it. We can't, like we can know that we're caught in some sort of self-destructive pattern and we can know that it's bad, but like knowledge like giving me more knowledge isn't going to help me. And I think that's kind of um, one of the things that he's just sort of speaking about in book eight. And this is where he does a lot of really interesting philosophy, <laughs> in my opinion, about the divided will, right? And this is where he really starts to talk about how evil habits can prevent us from being truly happy. So he says, this is, this is pretty much a quote. He says, by servitude to passion, habit is formed, and the habit to which there is no resistance becomes a necessity. By these links connected one to another, a harsh bondage held me under restraint. The new will, which was beginning to be within me, a will to serve you freely and to enjoy you, God, the only sure source of pleasure, was not yet strong enough to conquer my older will, which had the strength of old habits. So mm. my two wills, one old, the other new, one carnal, the other spiritual, were in conflict with one another. I had a will half-wounded, a will that is not wholehearted. There's so much there, but anyway, I love it. It's so striking, and I think anybody who reads it probably recognizes something of themselves in it. About some things, we don't tend to notice the division of the will. So, give an example. A circus performer doing high trapeze acts, right? She does them with fluidity, with expertise, and does not have a divided will. Like, one will saying, will you do this or not? Will you command it, or are you willing to? Mm -hmm. Freedom of the will to choose and the freedom of the will of consistent action are one in the same. They don't have to stop halfway through the trapeze act and saying, do I choose to do this again? Mm -hmm. there's, there's a fluidity and a wholeness to it. So mm -hmm. in some kinds of things, especially in arts, mm -hmm. we can find mm -hmm. that kind of fluidity. That's why I think every example... I could be correct on this, but nearly every example Augustine gives in his work of this division of the will, mm -hmm. he always mentions episodes in which it doesn't seem divided and usually has to do with art, mm -hmm. artfulness, mm -hmm. right? So if you become a good shortstop or a good performer or mm -hmm. an opera singer mm -hmm. or an artisan making saddles, you just do it fluidly. The habits right. build up of that art. Right. Mm -hmm. But morality is not just an art. Right. There's, there's one problem right off mm -hmm. the bat. Yeah, it's not a technique. It's not a technique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and of course, book eight beautifully summarizes this because 
Book eight is the story of several conversions. Let me just name the number of conversions. Yeah. Simplicanus, who's a friend of Ambrose, and I think he was a priest, tells the story about Victorinus, the famous Platonist, who came to the conclusion that Christianity was basically correct, but mm -hmm. refused to do a public baptism because it would be humiliating. Mm -hmm. It'd be humiliating for a professor, you know, to take the waters of baptism in front of 400 people. Mm -hmm. But he came to the decision he couldn't be a Christian without humbly doing so. Mm -hmm. That's the first conversion is Victorinus, <clears throat> Platonist. The second conversion is told by Pontificius, Yes, Ponticianus, who's a Roman official, who tells Olypius and Augustine the story of St. Antony of the desert, mm -hmm. interesting on the divided well, who goes into church, hears the gospel preached, give up all that you have, sell your possessions, so on and so forth, and follow me. And he just instantly does it. Mm -hmm. No yeah. conflict of will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so this story was given to these courtiers who were uh, public officials in the Roman regime, each of whom had a girlfriend. And they were so taken with this story that they dropped everything and they became monks and nuns. Mm -hmm. The third conversion is the, well, so we also have the story of Antony's conversion. Then we have Olypius and Augustine in the garden, and two more conversions mm -hmm. in which Augustine reads the passage from St. Paul and breaks into tears, the gift of tears, and instantly chooses. Mm -hmm. Finally. Just, and Olypius comes and sees it and converts. Mm -hmm. So there are all these conversions. So what is what are they amounting to? Well, they're... They're pointing to the fact that something deeper in the soul has to be cured on moral spiritual matters to have the fluidity and coherence of the will. Mm -hmm. And it's grace. Yeah, yeah. So it's these grace. chains, right, that were weighing Augustine down and holding him back, like he can't break free of them himself. He needs God's grace. And, you know, he finally receives it. I mean, it, I don't mean to imply that like, well, there was just this one moment of grace in his life, but this is the turning point for him. It, it's the moment where, I don't know, I wouldn't, I don't know that we would say the chains are totally broken, but they're at least loosened significantly <laughs> so that he can, you know, finally give himself to Christ. Right, exactly. That, that's exactly what happens. And it's important that it's in a garden. Right. Because the last time we dealt with a garden was back in... Stealing the pears. Stealing the pears. Mm -hmm. So now he's back in a garden and he's reading. He has, he has a little book, uh, at least part of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Mm -hmm. And he hears the voice of, of a child. He's sure it's a child. And uh, chanting Tole Leji, pick it up and read. Mm -hmm. And he thinks it's a game. Mm -hmm. Some kids on the other side of the hedge are making tricks. <clears throat> and he, he cracks the scripture. By the way, 
We think that scripture cracking is only a North American Protestant thing, but it goes way back in Catholic history. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the way through the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. all kinds of scripture cracking went on. So he just puts his finger on a passage, you know, from St. Paul that says, put aside incontinence and lust, make no provision for the flesh. Mm -hmm. And he does something more than understand it. He has an almost instant spiritual and moral, well, he feels it. And in, in a personal way, <laughs> this is personal, mm -hmm. as Billy Graham would put it. Yeah, he accepts it. And so he becomes as a child. I mean, would we say that the old will, the carnal will, is it finally being defeated or left behind or at least suppressed enough that he can like like to what extent is that old will extinguished at this point well he he and olypius take the waters of baptism the next easter vigil they're baptized in milan and augustine says i was able to put aside the profession of rhetoric so it's interesting the first thing he said the yeah. first thing he was able to put aside. And he, then there's the first fruits of the baptism. I mean, he's born again. The first fruit of the baptism is in Book 9, he and Monica are at the port city of Ostia Antica, mm -hmm. waiting for a ship over to Carthage. And they have a vision. Right. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's a conversation. It's, right. It's actually vision is the right is is the wrong word. They have a spiritual conversation mm -hmm. in which, in talking to one another about uh, the divine, they raise themselves in conversation to the point that they are no longer conversing in syllables. Right. Mm -hmm. Now that's a really important line because later on in the confessions we learn that that's what the good angels do. That mm. the angelic choir, the good angels, worship God without syllables. Okay. In other words, it's purely of the soul. But and I'm trying to answer your question now, but immediately they go down and they're back into their senses and they hear themselves talking to one another mm -hmm. in syllables. And Augustine really does draw the right conclusion, but it's especially rightly concluded in Book 10 is that this was a gift of God. He says, just lightly touching upon divine wisdom in their conversation. But there's a lot more that has to be cleansed of the soul. Such that the conversion is ongoing. Ongoing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's yep. what I would want to say. Because sometimes I think a lot of people think that conversion is like this thing that happens in a moment and you're converted, <laughs> right? Um, and in some sense, like that's true in the sense that there had to be a moment where you said, like, I'm going to do this, and then you do it. But there's also a sense in which obviously at any point you can revert or, I mean, you could go back to not choosing God above all things at any point. I mean, like, baptism doesn't safeguard you against that. No. Book 10 is going to be a, a long meditation on that. Yeah, yeah. Because he, 
he understands by the end of book nine, with the vision that he and his mother had, that the way up really is down again, because they return to their senses and they have to deal with the issue of humility, Mm -hmm. which means humility becomes absolutely crucial for uh, progress in the spiritual life. But they were given a gift, and it was especially a gift for Monica, because she was soon to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think she dies pretty soon after they have that vision. Right. Like she yeah, gets and, she yeah, gets a fever. and before they get on the ship. Yeah. And in a way, she had a wonderful vision just before she dies. And by the way, and she confesses on her deathbed. Right? She confesses that she's had a long and difficult spiritual life herself. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in book nine, he returns to the topic of his mother. He, he talked about Monica in the books where he's talking about his boyhood. And there we, we kind of learn about his dad and his mom and. There are sort of different approaches to parenting and and religion and things like this. Because, of course, his mother wanted him baptized and his dad was like, no. But we learn more here. But that's all in relation to Augustine. But in this part, he just talks about Monica just as her own person and kind of various challenges that she had to overcome. But he talks about you know, the things in her that were very good. I think in his first discussion of his parents, like he was being very critical of them <laughs> and critical of the way that they were raising him. Whereas here he's being much more generous to his mother and he sort of wants to hold her up as an exemplar of, I guess I would say wifely servitude. So, you know, she's married off at a young age and served him as her lord and then this guy is doesn't seem to be very good to her. He's always cheating on her. And she never got mad at him or quarreled with him over all of his infidelities. And so she was loved, respected, and admired for her husband because she, she just basically put up with it. And, and that her way of dealing with this was to kind of just pray for him or whatever. I have to say, I did not love, <laughs> I, d- I do not love this image of what it means to be a good wife or what it means to have a quote, happy marriage when all of the obedience and submission is clearly just one directional, right? It's just the woman submits to the man. Yeah, he's totally breaking his marriage vows, but whatever. And one question I have is, I mean, would this have been, would this have been at the time the Christian view of, you know, the way the wife should be? Should she just shut up and take it and pray and submit and hope for the best? I think this is more Rome than Jerusalem. Okay. <laughs> to be honest. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The um, I went to. Monica's tomb. I've been there many times. Mm-hmm. Where is it? It's the Church of San Agostino. It's one block from the Piazza Navona. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Because Monica was buried in Ostia, but 
a few centuries later when there were uh, pirates coming to that part of the coast, they wanted to preserve her, so they moved her into Rome. Okay. But there's, a, there's a holy card, I remember, that says, it's, it's a prayer to Monica. It goes something like this. Oh, Monica, you who had to endure so patiently a, I'm going to say, an irate and rustic husband, mm -hmm. by which I think was meant he was crude. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, so forth. You who had to pray for his conversion. So they were praising Monica for her, not for her wifeliness in the household, but for her spiritual intercession. Because we we have, when Monica leaves to follow Augustine to Italy, it's really interesting. She becomes a child of Ambrose. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, she becomes like the, uh, a pretty aggressive church lady. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, she's really on Ambrose's side on all of yeah. the controversies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a way in which Augustine and Monica, from different vectors, have the same conversion, something like the same conversion. They come under the effective patria, patrimonium of the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. and she's quite happy. Mm -hmm. But remember, on the Roman side now, she is the one who keeps on pestering Augustine to get rid of his concubine mm -hmm. for pretty much worldly purposes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but it's clear that, like, you know, Augustine's lust, like, it's one thing that's not clear to me is, like, how much Augustine was aware of his father's sexual misbehavior, like, as a kid. Because I don't remember it coming up directly in the earlier books, but it's sort of mentioned when he's just telling us more about his mother and sort of how it she... It comes up when he's in the bath. The yeah, baths. it does. But I, yeah, okay, fair. Yeah, it does there. But does it come up in the form of, like, infidelities? I, you see, I'm not sure it does. Yeah. But that one becomes a man, not when one is baptized, becomes a son of the Father through Christ, but when one has enough virility to do mm -hmm. the things that Roman men do. yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only reason that I'm asking is because it just sort of, for me, invites this question of how much of Augustine's, like, you know, addiction to sex is, or just good old-fashioned lust, however you want to talk about it, is, you know, just kind of what was modeled for him in a way. It was just kind of all around him, and nobody was really for restraining sure. that in him and perhaps was even encouraging it in him. And so that this process of, you know, forging his own chains was something that he didn't do completely on his own. Like he, like he was helped along from a very early age. Oh, yeah. Because we read that from book two into book three, when he arrived in Carthage, mm -hmm. he was, he was uh, shagging girls right away. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Including in the back yes. of church. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, one can infer from that it wasn't just the rowdy character of Carthage, but his own mm -hmm. yeah. upbringing. And right. see, they didn't 
curb any of this by baptism. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Monica has another interesting story about Monica is when she does arrive in Italy. In Milan. In Milan. Yeah. She is admonished by Ambrose about her leaving of incense and other things around the shrines of martyrs. Mm -hmm. And she obeys him. Mm-hmm. But Augustine was really worried that there were rumors out about the admonishment of Monica, and therefore he answers them in his uh, panegyric to Monica after she dies in Book Nine. He says she was never getting drunk. Right. So here was one of the Christian issues. Right. Is that you don't necessarily worship the ancestors, that is the martyrs, as gods. But you leave a little bit of wine, and mm-hmm. well, one dose for you, one dose for me, one dose for you, mm-hmm. one dose for me, mm-hmm. because Christians were doing that. Mm-hmm. And so the rumor, I'm, I'm just assuming the rumor went around about Monica mm-hmm. is that she was getting drunk. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's kind of interesting, because last time we talked about, like, why did Augustine write this book? And one answer to that was, like, he wanted to set the story straight about himself. He wanted to take back control of the narrative. And I do kind of wonder if he was, in a way, trying to make the case for his mother as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And she dies, uh, a, a, for Augustine, a fully converted Christian. Mm-hmm. She, she, she's a saint. Right. Right. And I just I just wonder if we would recognize her as a saint if it weren't for this book. Like how much did this book, you know, kind of factor into that? Well, it has to because it's this book that disclosed discloses to the literate Christian public mm-hmm. Monica the efficacy of Monica's prayers. Mm-hmm. Right. Intercessions. Right. Right. The other thing I want to say about Book Nine is that it's another episode of grief for Augustine. And the the two main episodes of grief, there was the friend who died early on, and I can't remember that friend's name. What was his name? The friend who died in, like, Book Four? It's just a friend. Oh, it never, okay, it never said I his name. I think it's just a friend. Yeah. Okay, so there was the friend. <laughs> And then there is this episode with his mother. And Augustine does seem to, like, kind of berate himself about the way that he grieves. And he seems to think that, like, in the one case, in the earlier case, the case of the friend, it was like, you know, I was just completely devastated. And you can sort of see, like, okay, that's too much. But in the case of his mother, like, he's beating himself up for grieving over his mother in ways that I don't totally understand. And it seems like the tension for him is that, well, I shouldn't be that sad because she is surely in heaven. So what's there really to be sad about? But like, I can't help it. I'm really sad. I love my mother. And anyway, I I just wondered if you had anything to say about, you know, sort of... Yeah. Because he rebukes his son, Adeodatus, of crying too much mm-hmm. and not coming back to his proper sensibilities about mm-hmm. this. So I think Augustine has that moment of grief, but it's not 
prolonged in the way it was in book four with the death of his friend. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Augustine is not saying silly things like, you know, Monica is now roller skating in heaven or something, Mm -hmm. you know. No, it's 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 a proper memorial um, to to Monica, and it is put into perspective. And now, when he he soon leaves Italy, Rome, and Milan, and goes to back to North Africa, he leaves as someone who is now, who is my father, who will teach me to be a filius. How do I get back? Mm-hmm. He now begins a new life because he becomes a pater. Within a year or two of arriving back in Carthage, he's made a priest and then a bishop. Right. He becomes like Ambrose. And so the meaning of the parochia, the the spiritual family, Mm -hmm. Catholic family, he is now having to embody in his own life. Mm -hmm. What, What happens to his son? Once he becomes a priest and a bishop, the the final record of that is not clear, but he dies. Olypius dies young. Hmm. Okay. The Olypius is still there at Monica's deathbed. You mean a, a Deodatus? Um, excuse me. Yeah. A Deodatus. Yeah. Excuse yeah. me. No, Olypius is very much alive. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Olypius becomes a pater as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting that Augustine just doesn't talk about Adeodatus after that. I mean, do you think it was just, well, why doesn't he even talk about it? Nor does he talk about his brother. Right, right. Who we learn almost nothing about, but who has died. Right, hmm And so the household that Augustine describes, the Roman domus in North Africa that he grows in, that has a, a bit of Christianity in it. It's very clear he's describing that not for the purpose of doing a sociology of Roman families. Mm-hmm. He is doing that to understand what the new family will be. Mm-hmm. So he's he's focusing on a little bit on his father. He needs a new daddy. And <laughs> something on his mother, mm-hmm. of course, who mm-hmm. becomes a pilgrim with him. And, of course... He already knows when he's writing this where it's going to end up. It's going, mm-hmm. He's going to be back home having to be a pater. Right. But and a, a different kind of pater. Yeah. Different kind of pater. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is quite remarkable that he tells us quite a bit about Olympias, Olympias. And his letters are very revealing about ecclesiastical colleagues he had and mm-hmm. deacons. Mm-hmm. And instructions he's giving to people and what became of them and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that's right. He's, he's not telling us about the family. Mm-hmm. This is why at a funeral, you are supposed to preach on what God has done. Right. Not yeah. on all the happy times or bad yeah. times you've had with your uncles. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the good case anyway. Okay, well, let's, so that so that's where book nine ends, you know. Right. Monica dies, and he kind of is talking about his grief over her. And then it's book 10. Now, book 10 is, 
like we said at the beginning, it's a definite turning point. It's much more philosophical. There's a lot of philosophy of mind going on in book 10. There's there's this whole conception of happiness that's getting articulated. He talks a lot about memory. He talks a lot about self-knowledge and self-deception. And then he just also just kind of talks a lot about confessing. Like what what does a confession do? And then there's also some stuff about curiositas again. Like for me, I've never really had a line on book 10. Like I could never really explain how it all hangs together or what the main point of it is. Or also like its place as a as another pivot or clear transition point. So I just wondered if you could help us try to understand how to read book 10. Okay, but we're going to, we will spend more time in our next podcast about book 10. Yes, we will do a deep okay. dive. But I think before we do that, maybe some guideposts? <laughs> well, there, there are two approaches to book 10, and they're both intrinsic to Augustine's plan for this book. Mm-hmm. One, he is still making a confession. In fact, he goes into a real confession in Book 10 about his sins. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what do the rhetoricians and the lawyers, how do they lay out a case of confession or evidence? And there's there's three prongs to it. What's called in Latin, on sit? If it is, if it is, that is, it's a conjecture. Was an act really committed? True or false? It's called onset. Mm-hmm. The second thing that the lawyer or the rhetorician has to answer is the issue quid sit, what it is or was. That is, we've got to define what it is that happened. Mm-hmm. And third, quale sit, which are the qualities or factors, or for the lawyer, justifications. In other words, if it happened, so-and-so killed the other person, what was that act? What kind of offense was it? Well, it's something that belongs to criminal law. It was not an accident. Third quality said, was there any justification for it? Right? Mm-hmm. Was it self-defense? I mean, what was going on? Mm-hmm. He takes these three rhetorical Roman and Roman legal devices mm-hmm. and applies them to himself. Mm. I mean, that's the inner structure of this confession. What acts have I committed? What, what kind of things were they, mm-hmm. right? What could justify or even what could remediate them? Right. This is like going and making a confession, what you say to a priest. Right. Yeah, except he's confessing them, obviously, to God. Mm-hmm. So. You have to keep this structure in mind. He's interrogating his life and his soul. Okay. Right. The second structure is, is semiotical. What do words mean and what do signs mean? And so why do some people look out upon the world and they understand that the vegetable is something naturally less perfect than a human being? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do they not take from these things as signs, understanding that, the, that there is a creator? Mm-hmm. They're not self-made. Mm-hmm. 
why are we, he, he calls it a forest of signs. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm surrounded by a forest of signs. Why do some people interrogate but not get an answer? Why do some people get an answer? And it really does have to do with being trained by Scripture and the Holy Spirit in understanding the relation between signs and their reference. Mm -hmm. And this is why even in Book 10, he's beginning to make the move. We just have to deal with Scripture directly now. Mm. In other words, let's get my life out of it. Mm. Yeah. So that, that the, he calls the first 10 books De Me, that is, they're about me. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the last three are De Scripturis, it's about Scripture. Mm-hmm. So now Scripture can teach us how to understand signs, beginning with Genesis 1. Okay. That's what he's on route to. Okay. And it's a Extraordinarily complex. Book ten, philosophically, is more complex than book eleven. Although oh, everyone goes to, to yeah. book eleven because it's on time. Mm-hmm. But in book eleven, he's being taught by scripture what time is. Right. Book ten, he's being taught first by the very phenomenology of his own life and his memories and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. I have so many questions about book ten. <laughs> So, yeah, well, maybe that, do you think that's a good place to end it, Russ, for this time, for this installment? Yeah, we can end here because that's where we begin with the very first sentence of Book 10. It's it's all in the theme, who will show me? Mm -hmm. Someone by word or by natural event or by revelation, I, I need to be taught how to interpret. Right. Okay. Well, I look forward to our next installment. Thanks so much again, Russ, for doing this. I'm super grateful. Good. See you next time. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks, as always, goes to Will Dethridge, Joe Coleman, and Bea Quasi for their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and quite generally want to support the project of reconnecting knowledge and virtue, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash to become a monthly patron. Our patrons enjoy many benefits like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive artwork and also free digital subscriptions to either The Lamp or The Point magazine. I'd like to thank my friends at The Lamp and The Point for underwriting my Patreon page. If you want to learn more about either of these wonderful magazines, please visit thepointmag.com or thelampmagazine.com. And please don't forget to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever other platform you use. This helps us curry favor with our algorithmic overlords, which is important to the success of this podcast. For our next episode, I will close out the conversation about the confessions with Russ, and we will discuss the final three books. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Mm-hmm.